G'day and welcome to Radio Notes, where those in music talk life and those in life chat music and more. I'm John Merge and Komang will be our special guest today. I'm giving you an edit of a longer version of the chat. It's on the back of a single called Devi as well, and I'll give you details of those in the show notes. I wasn't even 100% when I did this conversation, uh, but I'm going to share it with you anyway. Because we're a podcast and this gives us a chance to let you listen into some of the conversations in a bit more of a raw nature. Coming, welcome to Radio Notes. Thanks for joining us. The brand new single is called Thanks. Devi and the new EP out next year in 2021 is called Mythologies. We'll get to the idea of mythologies during our conversation. Let's start with some basics. How would you describe that musical mix for which you find yourself from? Probably like, oh, firstly, thanks for having me. It's lovely to be here. I would probably say it's a mix of electronic with soul and R&B elements. The actual production of it, I want to take you back to to your first demo two years ago. I'll take you back to your first demo two years ago Mm. uh, with Logic called Isolation. That's one of the first songs I released actually um, when I was still learning Logic and it kind of floated back up during this isolating period and I was like, wow, okay, I, that really speaks to the time now. I mentioned Logic particularly because you also are quite a fave with Ableton and other programs that allow you to do your craft and I'd like to know how you approach that when you've got a new piece of technology as, as a producer of music in that element. So with that hat on, what's that connection you have with the inanimate object that is something like Ableton or Logic or whatever the program or machine might be? That's a really good question. I grew up playing piano, so I feel like moving over into computers was quite intimidating and like a big reason I kind of put it off for so long. I guess what it is is like treating it like an instrument. So understanding its language, like first and foremost, you kind of have to like understand its language before you can even start making stuff on it. Because if you don't know how to like program like a a MIDI instrument into it, you just don't know how to make sounds with it. So I feel like that always for me is the first step being like, okay, this is the interface. What does it all mean? And then going from there. The genre that's been explained for the current single and possibly for the EP and moving forward is that of gamelan, which is music of uh, ensembles of the people of Indonesia is my understanding of it. Can you explain that genre of music and I guess how it then influences how you program the machine and how you produce that music? I guess for a bit of context, like I started learning how to produce music properly when I was living in Indonesia. I moved to Indonesia in 2017, right after I finished my studies, because my mum's from Bali. I'd always wanted to live there, but had never had the chance growing up. So once I finished, I was like, all right, I'm out of here. Let's go to Indonesia, see what's happening and like learn the language and get closer to my family. So I moved to Yogyakarta, which is in central Java. It's a small city in central Java Mm -hmm. um, to work with a theater company there. What struck me while I was living there was this gamelan music. I'm sure like for listeners who've been to Bali before, like or other parts of Indonesia, you've heard it before. It's that sort of, I don't know if you've heard it before, John, but it's like that sort of metallic, it's like a percussive orchestra. So it all consists of like 
different gongs and like metal-based percussion. So talk us talk <laughs> us through for those that aren't initiated with that particular sound. So we have we've mentioned the gong sound, a shaker sort of sound in there as well. I think it varies depending from place to place. In Bali, for example, it's um there's suling, which is like a traditional woodwind, like a flute. It just, yeah, it really depends. But the main elements always seem to be, and I'll preface this by saying I'm no expert. It's just like this really resonant, rhythmic, quite atmospheric and quite otherworldly sort of sound and very full, very full, just layers and layers of like different xylophones and gongs and like other similar instruments which each have their own character and name. And we're asking that question then from that experience where you were living there, learning the language, getting that reconnection with family, or you may return to that as well, how that was then translated into this world of Ableton and Logic and other, I don't want to make it sound like it's all computer generated because it's not, but how it's translated then into the music that you produce as a music producer. A lot of what I was really inspired by was A, the, the atmosphere and like the mood but be also like the scales themselves. So with gamelan, there's these specific scales, which aren't Western scales. There's slendro and pelob, and they each have a distinct sound. And kind of if you've worked with Western scales all your life, you kind of need to like tune your ear to them and be like, wait, what, what is that? So while I was living in Jogja, what struck me was in in Jogja, they have these singers called Sinden as part of their gamelan orchestra a lot of the time. And they have this beautiful, like, really high frequency, like, tone. It's really stunning. It's, like, all in the head. And I was like, I want to learn how to do that. That sounds beautiful. Like, I need someone to, like, teach me more about that if it's, like, appropriate, you know? And it was actually from that style of singing and that scales. That's how I, I guess, like when I started producing, I was really influenced by that. So just starting to like work with that sense of like grandness and atmosphere. And even like in some instances, like sampling that Sinden kind of like way of singing and using it myself as well to sing. How did you find it within yourself as a communication tool? Did it bring something into you as an artist that made you think, yes, I can communicate with these sounds? Yeah, I think, like, for me, gamelan was just one of the styles that really resonated with me, pun not intended, while I was living in Indonesia because there were other styles as well, more modern styles like um, dangdut, which is like Indonesian folk, and like fangkot, which is like a house version of dangdut. Like, yeah. So we've got all these different layers here. And for me, I think in that general context, what it was was like, whoa, okay, here are sounds that like I've heard throughout my childhood. I had no context for them. And now, like, I find them fascinating and, and I want to learn more about all of them. What would happen if I was able to, like, mix these with the type of sounds that I normally listen to, like, on my iPhone, like, on Spotify or whatever? And for me, it was kind of that way of communicating, kind of, like, playfully, just mixing my 
proudness of being Indonesian and of being Balinese with who I also am, which is like someone who listens to a lot of R&B or like um, trip hop or like other, like more Western music forms. I want to ask you about the sense of place because you did go there to get a better understanding of where you came from in terms of the family lineage. What sense of place did you feel whilst you were there for that time? What sense of place? Um, yeah, that's like a really meaty question. I guess, um, I mean, I didn't know it at the time, but since speaking to a lot of people who live here but maybe come from like migrant backgrounds or like diasporic backgrounds in general, like there's like this feeling, at least for me anyway, of like returning home in quotation marks and kind of just feeling really alien there and being like, wait, what? But what? I'm not technically Australian either. So how do I fit into this equation? So I think there was like a lot of angst at first of being like, oh my gosh, I don't belong. And I found like other people there who were like from Australia, but also like Indonesian background who were also being like, yeah, same here. Like what's going on? I think after a while, after my Indonesian got better and I got closer to my family, I was able to form like a bit of uh, armor a lot of where like people who were saying things like, oh, you're not, you sound or look really Western or like you're not actually Indonesian though, which like initially really hurt. I could then be like, yeah, kind of am not. Like I'm in this in-between space. Like I guess in that sort of way, like creating my own space for myself, which is portable, like which I can take back here as well and be like, well, I'm Indonesian and I'm Australian. I'm not like in between or like half and half, like, you can be multiple things at once and that's fine. Did you come back from that particular trip and travel, as we're talking about there, regarding some sense of identity with an idea of how music was going to be part of your life moving forward? I guess I'm asking at a naive level, how much was it a catalyst for the music that you're now making, but at a deeper level, how it may have decided who you're going to be in the music scene? Yeah, for sure. I guess like while I was producing music and stuff while I was over there, I was still making a lot of theatre and doing projects. I initially lived in Yogyakarta, which was in central Java, and then I moved over to Bali. And then when the project finished there, I moved over to Jakarta. And it was only in Jakarta that I really started to get that sense because that's where I really started meeting a lot of jazz musicians and other music producers and like soul or like new soul musicians and they all had this like sort of wider community and like events that they'd come together to like play music or whatever. I was also taking a music production class at a record label there. Talk to us about Double Deer. Double Deer was a record label there which I kind of stumbled upon through friends and I found that they were doing music production classes and they were also doing like other like music classes, mostly like hip hop related. And I was like, oh, that looks cool. And it looks like a fun way to meet people. Why don't we do it? So I signed up for the music production class, which was focused on hip hop as well. And I was like, I want to learn more about this genre and about its history And I was the only girl there and I was the only, like, Westerner there. So (laughs) it was immediately like, 
hey guys, like, oh, I hope it's okay for me to be here. And everyone was just so welcoming and lovely. My teacher, Lays, who's a MC based in Jakarta, who's really brilliant, like really, really brilliant mind. Um, he just welcomed me right in and we struck a friendship. And it was really through that community that I was able to be like, and their welcomeness and their enthusiasm for me being there and learning with them or from them. That was when I was like, okay, I'm seeing how like all the pieces are starting to fit. Like I'm finding my people here. I'm seeing that like I'm being encouraged and maybe I can take that back to Australia and maybe I can like bring some of that energy back. I want to know what that MC taught you about the use, pronunciation and more importantly, the delivery of language. Mm, So Lays or Javi, which is his real name, for context, I'll well, all of the other people in the class were more focused on learning how to MC better while I was focused on production. So I kind of was like taken along for the ride a bit and like <laughs> they would be like, all right, we're all going to write 16 bars and you have to write 16 bars as well. And I'd be like, what? Me? No, I'm, I'm not an MC. And just kind of learning through that way, like absorbing it. It was interesting because most of them wrapped in Indonesian. There's like a big rap scene in Indonesia which is all in English but all of these people were rapping in Indonesian it was an interesting time because I'm not fluent yet but I'm getting pretty close and because as you said like rapping is so much about like language and like mastery of language they'd have these playful sort of like jabs at each other where they'd like practice their bars and how you would freestyle and everyone would be like, oh, oh my gosh, whoa. And I'd be like, yeah. Like two seconds after I'd be like, yeah, wow. Because <laughs> it would take me just that bit longer to process everything. But I guess what it taught me is that, well, in an Indonesian context, like the Indonesian language is so playful and it's constantly changing. And it's just, it's, an, it's a very young nation and a very young um, national language. so. Every time I come back, it's just like evolving, evolving. And you could really see that in the bars that everyone was fitting. A lot of it, I was like, I'm pretty sure that slang didn't exist last time I was here, but okay, here we go. You've been working with Rani uh, Pramarastri regarding uh, something you call creatives of colour. Can you talk to us about that and how that's going? Yeah, sure. Um, So it's Rani Pramesti. So creatives of colour is a... A shared space and platform for and by creative people of colour. It is a platform that is relatively new, just over a year old. Um, I get the feeling you weren't expecting me to ask about it. That's how new it is. It's so hipster. Creators of Colour, yeah, is a very new platform, um, which kind of arose out of Rani and myself's, well, another bit of context here. I was working with Rani initially on a project for Indonesian international students through Rani's storytelling collaborative, which is Rani P Collaborations. Um, And we were creating an app of some kind or some sort of product to help Indonesian international students feel a little bit more at home here. We actually ended up dropping out of this um, creative tech startup program that we were a part of due to some racist incidents um which kind of just added up and ended with like 
mainly Rani because I was only working one day a week. Um, Rani just being like, I, I really can't do this anymore. And it was from that that Creators of Colour began because we kind of realised that in this process there was no body or collective we could go to to just be like, whoa, that was really messed up and problematic. Like, is there is there support or is there like community, like a sense of community to go back to and be like, let's hold each other through this and support each other through this. So Creators of Colour came out of that. So it was me and Rani for a while conducting interviews initially. It was very research-based with 60 different creative people of colour. Um, and that, you know, that's a big umbrella term. So that can mean Black identifying, Afro-diaspora, First Nations, of course, and other people of colour and publishing that research. And from there, it grew into a co-working space. And from that, lockdown happened and we took everything online. So we've been running online workshops and networking events and creating, I suppose, community spaces for different people. Expanded now, I suppose, like throughout all of this, Rani and I have been having continual conversations about what it means to be running a platform called Creators of Colour but it's two Asian people, like that doesn't exactly make sense. So we recently secured more funding from a partner recently and are now able to expand it so that there's going to be an Afro-diaspora or Black identifying co-facilitator and First Nations, um, like an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander co-facilitator. So that's been the journey there. Really exciting. And again, like I don't come from a social justice background or an advocacy background and I understand like the gaps there. So it's been like a big learning process for me mm-hmm. as I've sort of like helped this platform grow. Talk us through what happened when way back many a year ago when you were 18 on the 26th of January. What was going on? What was going through your mind whilst you were going through that day? Oh, Wow, really appreciate the depth of your research once again. That's like really impressive. Um, yeah, when I was 18, I went to my first um, survival day rally. Um, I moved to Australia or, you know, so-called Australia when I was 16 from Brunei, which is where I grew up, and didn't really know much about um, issues around colonialism and the colonisation of this land until, yeah, I went to that rally when I was 18 and started, I guess, learning and catching up and being like, whoa, hang on a sec, what is actually going on here? Yeah, I suppose that was the start of it for me with, like, learning. We're currently in conversation with Kumang. Their current single, Devi, is available. It's off an EP called Mythologies out in 2021. We'll talk about that later in our piece. Clear mirror to see yourself, no use to use a broken one. Why have I written that down? How does that fit into your life? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I know why you wrote that down. That is in reference to the the first lyrics of my debut single, Dewi, um, which are in Indonesian. And the Indonesian lyrics are jangan liat. And that means don't look into the broken mirror. And I guess like that whole song itself is like about um, 
I suppose it's about the future, the future and the past, so to speak. It kind of arose from a time where I had a dream about a little girl and I woke up and I knew that that little girl was my daughter because it was really similar to other dreams my mum has had in the past about family members who've passed and they've been really like delightful, calming experiences. So when I woke up, I was like, ah, this girl, okay. Who is she? I just knew. And I just loved how like being visited by this person, so to speak, was so similar to being visited by other really dear family members of mine. And from that, yeah, I just wrote this song about what it means to feel a responsibility to generations to come, but Mm -hmm. also to the generations that have been before you. And Jangan Liat Jemin Yang is kind of about, yeah, like not looking into a broken mirror. Don't look into a mirror that reflects a version of you that is fractured because there's no use in doing that. So that's the idea of the mirror, may it be broken or not, but you mentioned dreams. Oh boy, it must be the isolation happening in your part of the world at the moment. Cuddly polar bears and toothless crocodiles, do you need a shrink? <laughs> I think we all need a shrink, John, <laughs> all the time. Yeah, apparently there's a global phenomenon of, like, really vivid dreams. Yeah, cuddly polar bears. Okay, so it might be a cold area. That's great. We've got toothless crocodiles, so you're being attacked, but you can't be really attacked in a way. It's like a, a gummy bear kind of tooth thing happening. And then a swarm of bees. So just when you think you're comfortable, the swarm of bees are stinging you. <laughs> Talk to me about the polar bears, <laughs> the crocodiles and the bees. <laughs> this is great. I feel like I'm getting free therapy now. <laughs> um, can I just say all of those dreams were different dreams. Oh, so I, and I thought the unicorn oh. was going to come and save you. I think it will tomorrow night. I just have to like stay tuned and find out. But to be fair, the polar bear dream and the swamp bees dream was all in the same night and the toothless crocodile dream was the night before. And I was just like, I'm really getting visited by a zoo here. I don't know what's going on. But I've been talking to a friend about it and we've been dissecting all the symbolism of everything. Excellent. And um, they've been getting visited by a lot of animals as well. And I feel like the bottom line here is that you can't really trust um, dream symbolism websites because they all just kind of talk about, they, it's like astrology, like they talk about really generic. It's like it could be this thing or it could mean the exact opposite. And that's all I've learned. Have you learned whether or not you can now smile at a crocodile? Oh, is that a thing? You can't smile at crocodiles? Um, A very popular song was uh, (laughs) Never Smile at a Crocodile. Anyway, that's my dad dad joke for the weekend. Tick. (laughs) (laughs) The idea of a toothless crocodile makes me think of like, I guess for me, for the Australian outback and tussling those particular prickly challenges and the fact that the strongest thing a crocodile actually has apart from its whack is that of its teeth. So if you take away it from it, is it still a crocodile? I reckon it's just a confused crocodile or a kind of a very relaxed one maybe. Maybe it's just got to rely on the other crocodiles to like feed it. Maybe it's a vegan crocodile, the first ever. 
yeah, maybe that's it. Maybe that's it. Cool. We solved it. Let's talk about mentorships. Uh, you had a mentorship with Sui Zen, who is an absolute uh, legend in their field and particularly in your field of music as well. Can you talk us through that, how it came about? Sui Chen is awesome. So how that came about was I did a, I applied for a grant last year, Signal Young Creatives Lab grant, which was over at Signal Art Space. By the way, how great is Signal Art Space? I was looking up their work, they're close at the moment, but talk us, firstly, if you don't mind, we'll, we'll get back to back to them, but... Talk to us about that creative space and what they do. Signal are so cool. I didn't know that they existed until I found an ad for this grant that was closing the day after I saw the ad and I was like, oh my gosh, I must be a part of this space and thankfully got it. But it's this space in the city specifically for art for young people. So um, between the ages of 14 and 25 and they run workshops, they run events they have just so much cool stuff happening all the time and they're really switched on and really supportive of young artists and young people interested in art in general they're just awesome an awesome group of people each year they choose six or so different artists between those ages and they help them deliver a project over that year in the grant application, you just have to propose what your project will be and then they assess it based on that and that includes a mentorship. So I proposed the time to create this Mythologies EP, to create this body of work and kind of consolidate it and then to perform it over like a night where there was like spoken word and DJs and dancers and like just kind of a multidisciplinary space. Mm-hmm got that like the application went through and I got it and I requested they were like who do you want to be your mentor and I was like oh gosh like well it would be amazing if I could have Sui Chen but if she's not available of course like understand she said yes which was awesome in itself just to be working with someone as you said who's like really a legend just a really brilliant and prolific artist yeah I I don't know where to start like I just learned so much from her. She was so generous with her knowledge and her time when it came to like artistry, like producing music itself, but also other things like what having a career in music even looks like. Because like at that point, I just returned from Indonesia. I didn't know really what a label did or a booking agent did or a manager did or anything like that. Like it was all just the same for me. I was like, and they'll just help you. Like, she was like, oh gosh, you have so much to learn. She was really patient with me. She just taught me the ins and outs of business, of production, and of like live performance, even. There was just so many bases covered. Let's talk, and it's taking you back before, obviously, the mentorship, and that is the acting training that you got in Jakarta, formerly trained as an actor. What happened, and whether or not acting is still part of your DNA? I, I did my formal training in Melbourne at the VCA. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but I undertook some projects in Jakarta. I suppose when you're a teen and you're, like, told by the careers counsellor, like, do what you love or whatever, I think my initial ideas of what acting was were really romanticised I went into it because I loved acting. It's just a really fun activity. It's incredibly fun and incredibly invigorating. And 
I left it, my training, like still having a huge love for it, but realizing, oh, it's not just about loving acting. It's about going to auditions and it's about who you know and it's about having a connection with the theater community and the film community that is audiences as well as the people who are behind the scenes. It's like feeling a part, like it's feeling that these are your people. I think that's what it was for me. And I think as I sort of grew older, I realized there were many elements to not just acting itself as an activity, but the industry of acting, which I had qualms with, either like politically (laughs) or like emotionally. I was like, I don't want to audition over and over again. Like that's exhausting. And to prove myself to people for a project I don't even necessarily want to do, like that's not fun for me. So I think it was like, de-romanticizing my idea of acting sure when you're at the top potentially or like once you've got a name for yourself you can be a bit more picky and choosy about like who you want to work with and like the artistic integrity of your projects and how that aligns with your interests but when you're just starting out oh my gosh it's it's a slog that for me was like I kind of got to a place where I was like okay like do I love it enough to go through this bit so I can eventually get to the bit where it's a bit lighter you know just was like no I don't I don't love it that then brings up the question obviously music for you has produced a different set of endorphins and engagement will that mean that acting may play a part in terms of how you then project and release the EP in a live setting when live music's a thing again Yeah, for sure. I think like once a theatre kid, always a theatre kid, I still definitely had like a theatrical element to like the live part of it and like the storytelling I think comes through as well. And I still have like such a fond place in my heart for theatre and for like other forms related to theatre. I think live art in general like still wows me. (laughs) So incorporating live art like dance and performance in general will be like a big part of it as the project matures. I think the great thing about my training at the VCA was how encouraging they were of like thinking really broadly in terms of what art in quotation marks is like still like a super like westernized sense of it but they were also like really encouraging of us to like work and collaborate with dancers and with sound designers in a more like collaborative like intentional way and people who have different skill sets and like allowing that all to coexist like I really appreciate that element of the training. Let me ask you about Debbie which is the the current debut single from you and more will be out very soon that word relates to goddess talk to us about the idea of a goddess and which goddess you actually aspire or are inspired by. I don't know. I think with goddesses, I mean, traditionally, like, Saraswati has always been my favourite goddess. She is the goddess of, like, the Hindu goddess of learning and books and knowledge and artistry. So ever since I was a kid, like, we have Saraswati Day each year and my parents would always be like, put out your favourite books and give thanks to these books for giving you, like, the knowledge you need. And so, like, every year 
that's just been such a lovely ritual for me. And it's like included putting my laptop there as well. And like my music equipment as well and being like, thank you. So that's like a goddess I traditionally like really align with and aspire to. I think like in terms of goddesses in general, like I prefer like talking about, I suppose, goddess energy or like feminine, like divine femme energy, which, you know, isn't necessarily like, just for people who identify as women only. Like, I think we all have really divine feminine energy within all of us. And I think like honoring that no matter who we are and honoring the traits that we find are useful to align with, with that within us is like where I'm at with it right now. Because I understand like, you know, the whole like goddess, like culture in like contemporary culture can be a bit like, oversimplifying a bit like gender binary. So Mm. I suppose just taking a more fluid approach to it. Previously, we were talking about that broken mirror and not to have one and and looking at self and making sure you can see the whole of whatever that self is and how it's presented. When do you feel your greatest goddess? At what point in your life or time did you feel that greatest goddess for yourself? I feel it every day to a degree. And I try to remind myself of that as well. I try to remind myself that it's like accessible to me always. I call it like my better self or like my most embodied self. And that's like, I feel that in, it can be like in a glimmering moment or it can be for a whole day. It's just the state of like being really present, I suppose. And like having a really big pee your pants kind of laugh with your friends or it's like, hugging my sister or something and feeling really present there it's just like moments where I'm like oh yeah this is me this is and especially when I'm singing like when I am feeling really disconnected from that and feeling really anxious and in my head one trick for me is to sing because that brings me back to my body and it makes me feel like oh damn like this is something I love and I'm good at and it's accessible to me now moments like that where I really feel like I'm my best version of myself Yeah, that would be it for me. The EP was recorded above a vintage store. Is that true? Yeah, it is. Okay, so for context, it was next to a vintage store. So the vintage store was underneath. So a store that was directly underneath my studio was a store on Brunswick Street, which sold... Australian-made basics. And the vintage store was next to the studio. It was all recorded in that studio space above Brunswick Street. So I guess, like, that was nice because I get to go in every day and say hi to the owner of the store and, like, have a chat. And then above was the studio and it was me and it was my friend who was making jewellery and another friend who was designing clothes and another friend who was a videographer. So very disparate different mediums there but we all kind of just like hung out and I'd have friends over who would collaborate with different tracks or like give ideas yeah a really lovely time actually in that space you could watch the world go by on Brunswick Street as well and you were feeling a bit stuck do you get a sense of nostalgia whilst you were making this EP yeah definitely definitely that space itself yeah is like an old shop front And there was like that vintage store and Brunswick Street in general, like is an old street 
respectively speaking. So I think for me it was like, it was like a sense of nostalgia, but like a sense of surrealism as well, because often like in the afternoons I would play some gamelan music just to like center myself and like make me feel, you know, feel connected. And it would be like this old gamelan music ringing through this like old shop front space, which like honestly was a bit creaky and creepy at night and like felt a little bit haunted. And it was just like that clashing of worlds again, a very nostalgic feeling, but like really surreal there. I think that must have like gone into the music a bit with the atmosphericness. I think it would have definitely influenced it. And it sounds like it was a very creative space as well. So not just you producing music there, as you said, there was a jeweler and other creatives as well. So the question then is what music was playing when it wasn't your own music in that space? What was the mutual sound of that space? Oh, gosh. It was always just really chilled out, like Spotify radio. I would love to come up with like a thoughtful answer, but it was honestly just like we would play like Bad, Bad, Not Good and then like song radio, <laughs> like Little Dragon, song radio. And that was like the most diplomatic choice, I mm-hmm. feel, for all of us. So we would all be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's pleasant and good. I, I'm a cheeky bastard because there you are creative artists trying to earn your place and you know make a couple of bucks and you know live on your art and there you are listening to musicians that are getting 0.00003 cents per play yes i'm being cheeky oh my gosh yes no it's so real i and i didn't know well i had a sense of it but i didn't like really factor it in until i released my own single with my housemates we looked through this table together of how much 0.00% you got from each stream. And it was just like, wow, I essentially need to direct everyone over to Tidal. We all need to get a Tidal account because <laughs> that's that's one that pays the most apparently. Or, but no one uses it. Or you could release it on vinyl on Bandcamp and then on their particular days you could get all the money from the sales. Yeah. Yes, I definitely want to release the EP on vinyl. Cashes would be great, but also... Also, so we can play it. That would be very cool. But yeah, it's a real issue. Like, how are artists supposed to make money from their songs if you, they get like 0.003 cents every time? Got a record player as well. So, we've been listening to a lot of that, um, a lot of impulse purchases for the record player, which well, has been really nice. Well, let's talk about that. What was your last record that you purchased for that said record player? It was actually a compilation of Indonesian psychedelic funk from the 70s called Those Shocking Shaking Days which is like over three different records and my housemates have all been buying like a whole mix of things. We've got Dolly Parton most recently and Mariah Carey as well and Lizzo is a big one that we just recently got, which we're all loving. What particular era, if we don't go way back to 167 year? What particular era do you feel comfortable with in the more modern eras? Well, I'm a 90s baby, so I would go with like the early 2000s. Is that too recent? No, look, if that's where you feel comfortable, because there are people of your era, your your generation, who, who are going back to the 50s and 60s, and I still don't understand why. Maybe the music was better back then. But you're saying 2000s is yours. Early 2000s, yeah, that's where it's at for me at the moment. I'm feeling nostalgic. And particularly an era for which you would 
enjoy living in? Which particular era would that be? Probably the nine, 70s. Actually, no, I'm going to say the 80s in New York with like the nightclub scene. How does mythology play a role in this particular EP? Which ones are we touching in on across the EP? There's one song in particular, Srikandi, which really harkens back to that theme, which is about my friend Mira, whose who's middle name is Srikandi. Srikandi is an ancient warrior woman who holds like a really dear place in a lot of Japanese people's hearts. And Mira is Japanese-Australian, and that particular song is about Mira wanting to get a tattoo of Sukandi, but not feeling Japanese enough and feeling like she needs to prove it before she gets it. She's got it now, and we've overcome that whole bout of, like, what is going on? That song is really about that sort of time. So in that, there's also songs about, I don't know, I guess, like, mythologies as a concept in general has been bleeding into the, all the different songs in terms of like each song is about what story do you want to tell yourself to get yourself through this world? Like what mythology do you want to create for yourself? And not just relying on my old mythologies but creating new ones. Is there that sense of identity as well whilst you're making those mythologies in terms of how you wish to identify as you walk through life and go to your next journey or to your end? In the mythologies that people will see you for once you've passed this earth? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, it's just about creating space in the world for yourself in general and how you choose to cultivate and shape that space. You know, a really abstract answer there, but that's what has really resonated for me with the whole mythologies theme in general. Because like initially when I moved to Indonesia, I was like, I just want to assimilate. Essentially, I want to like become as Indonesian as possible in as short amount of time as possible. I want to learn how to eat like an Indonesian, think like an Indonesian person. But through that, it was more like what really created a sense of peace was like I already am so what does that even mean like now that that's to the side what can I create for myself what what is part of your mythology now that you're back back here I think a big one is just the most significant one is acknowledging that I again am a guest on this land and I'm uninvited and I think like the biggest one that I'm coming to terms with and understanding and learning more about is how to be a respectful guest on this land and understand that the stories of this place are not mine and I am not native to them. So like I guess what it is now is like understanding the space that I can occupy here which like is respectful Mm -hmm. and like sustainable for everyone. Like, I guess a more community-focused story. And that's one of the important things about your EP as well is that you'll be able to tell your story and your knowledge of what you've been through and that sense that you were saying about what mythology um, people can have of your life and what you've been through and the stories of the lives you've crossed and been part of as well. Before we leave, uh, you did mention your friend eventually did get that tattoo. You have a tattoo on your left elbow. What does that tattoo mean? 
this is the first tattoo I got. It was like, it was partly just to prove to myself that I could do something spontaneous and not have to overthink everything. It's a square and it's got these little wiggly circles in it. And I suppose what it was for me was like a reminder to stay soft and wiggly, even like in spaces that feel confined and like box-like and city-like. We're all just like jelly beans at the end of the day, trying to like do this thing. I think that was a reminder for me to, to be mindful of that. You're an amazing legend. Comran, thanks very much for joining Radio Notes. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure for me too. Thanks for having me, John. The single we were talking on the back of is called Devi. That's D-E-W-I. And you can get it on Bandcamp. Radionotespodcast.com for show notes and links. Web design there by Steve Davis. Theme music by Martin Kennedy and All India Radio. I'm Tammy Weller. John Merch is the producer and host based in Adelaide, South Australia. 